Hello and welcome to the second episode of the History Jar podcast. Last time I introduced you to the mnemonic No Plan Like Yours to Study History Wisely. The first letter from each word is a reminder of the royal houses in the order that they ruled England. This week we've arrived at the P for plan, so Plantagenet. The Lancasters and the Yorks of like and yours are also Plantagenets. The family ruled from 1154 until 1485. The batch we're going to look at today are the Angevin monarchs because they are descended from Geoffrey of Anjou. I've got a brand new mic and have been given a tip that involves recording while sitting under a duvet. So let's hope I sound better this episode. Henry I's daughter Matilda was married at an early age to the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry V. He died in 1125 and the Empress Matilda was married off for a second time by her father to Geoffrey of Anjou in 1128. It wasn't a rip-roaring success. For a start, Geoffrey was only 14 and Matilda was 26. And I don't think she was very happy about having to trade in being an Empress for being a Countess. For a while, the bride and groom refused to have much to do with one another, but there was a reconciliation which resulted in the birth of a son, yet another Henry, in 1133. Geoffrey bought the counties of Anjou, Touraine and Maine to the party. He also gave the family the name Plantagenet, after the common broom, or Plantagenesta, that he wore in his hat. This was the starting point for the Angevin Empire, as Normandy and England, Matilda's inheritance, had to be acquired. Normandy came under Plantagenet control in 1150. Geoffrey captured it and promptly gave it to his son Henry. Matilda's son, Henry, was known as Henry Fitzempress, literally the son of the Empress, as a reminder as to where his claim to the English throne came from. He's also known as Henry Kurtmantle because he wore a short hunting cloak rather than the longer, more ceremonial robes of most monarchs. He loved hunting, had a temper, and was a bit of a whirlwind. He is recorded as sometimes eating his meals standing up because he was too busy to sit down. When he was 19, Henry acquired the Dukedom of Aquitaine by marrying the recently divorced Duchess. Eleanor had been married to Louis VII of France, but he much preferred prayer to his wife. And she already had a lively back story by the time Henry swept her off her feet. Eleanor, who was 30 at the time of her marriage, gave Henry a dukedom to add to his collection, the Aquitanian lion to add to the two that were already on the English royal arms, and a family of unruly sons, Henry, Geoffrey, Richard and John. It wasn't a happy family. The chroniclers record that Henry ordered an eagle to be painted in Winchester, and four young ones of the eagle sitting upon it, two upon the two wings, and a third upon the middle of the body, the fourth, not less than the others, sitting upon the neck, and more keenly watching the moment to peck out the eyes of its parent. But being asked by those who were on good terms with him what this picture might mean, Henry II said, the four young ones of the eagle are my four sons, who will not cease to persecute me even unto death. The younger of them, whom I even now embrace with such tender affection, will sometime at the last insult me more grievously and more dangerously than all the others. But at nineteen, that was all in Henry's future. 
1153, the Treaty of Wallingford identified Henry as the next King of England, and on the 11th of December the following year, he was crowned at Westminster. He set about bringing order to his new kingdom. He began by demanding the return of all royal castles and offered a building programme to ensure that the crown dominated the countryside. Dover Castle and Orford Keep in Suffolk are his handiwork. Then he made peace with the Scots by the very simple expedient of inviting Malcolm IV to become the Earl of Huntington. Henry was 24 and Malcolm was 16. It was a young man's game. The main thing that popular history tends to remember about Henry II is his troubled relationship with the church. Like all his Norman forebears, there was an argument between the king and the pope about who had the power to do what. And Henry II thought he won the argument when he appointed his friend Thomas Becket to be Archbishop of Canterbury in 1161. You may have learnt him at school as Thomas A. Becket, but the A is a Victorian affectation to make Thomas seem posher than he actually was. Three years later, the king's former friend fled to Europe. But Henry was used to scandal. After all, he was married to Eleanor of Aquitaine. In 1168, he even threatened to convert to Islam. In truth, the Archbishop of Canterbury not being in Canterbury only became a problem in 1170, when Henry decided to have his oldest son, Henry, crowned King of England for political reasons. The Bishop of York was eventually prevailed upon to do the honours and got himself into a huge amount of trouble with the Pope as a consequence. The young king, as Henry Jr. became known at that point, expected that his father, having made him king, would now give him some real power. Henry possibly didn't think that giving a 15-year-old power was such a good idea, and besides which, Henry was a Plantagenet and he had no intention of sharing power with anyone. In the meantime, Thomas Becket returned to England in December 1170. He was murdered, rather famously, in Canterbury Cathedral the following month by four of Henry's knights. The political situation deteriorated. And as if that wasn't bad enough, in 1173, the young King Henry persuaded his brothers Geoffrey and Richard to rebel against their father. And even worse, Eleanor joined with them. The boys fled to France The young king was Louis VII's son-in-law, having married a daughter from Louis's second marriage. I tell you, they're all related to one another somewhere along the line. Eleanor was prevented from joining her sons, and then spent rather a long time in custody. Louis, meanwhile, enjoyed pretending that Henry II really had abdicated the English throne in favour of his eldest son. Inevitably, the discontented the friends of the young king, most notably the Earl of Leicester, and the land-hungry rose up against the king, which probably didn't improve Henry II's frame of mind. The Scots, under their new king, William the Lion, took the opportunity to invade Northumberland, bringing it back into the fold of Scotland. Henry kicked the French into touch in the August of that year, and in July 1174, William the Lion was captured at the Battle of Annick. He was eventually released, but only after he swore homage to Henry II. And this came about after Henry II had done penance in Canterbury for the death of Thomas Becket.
Ultimately, Henry and his sons were reconciled, but Eleanor remained incarcerated, 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 until 1189, which gave Henry the freedom to conduct various affairs with very many mistresses, the most famous being Fair Rosamond, who was allegedly poisoned in her bower at Woodstock by the irate queen. For those of you who like a spot of science to back up your history, it was reported in March this year that an ice core taken from an alpine glacier contained lead pollution that reflects the industrial impact of Henry II's wars and the projects that were underway as a direct consequence of the murder of Thomas Becker. The same core identifies the pollution created in the reigns of Richard the Lionheart and King John. And what's even more interesting is that they correlate almost exactly to the lead that was mined in the Peak District. And I find it absolutely fascinating that a northwesterly wind depositing traces of pollution on a alpine glacier should actually back up the historical record. Inevitably... Henry and his sons continued to bicker. The young king died in 1183 from dysentery when he was rebelling against his father. Geoffrey died in 1186, leaving only Richard and John. John was Henry's favourite, um, and at this point his nickname was Lackland because he was the youngest. There was nothing for him to inherit. Henry had tried to make him Lord of Ireland, but that had ended disastrously after four months. John notably pulled the beards of important Irish chieftains and mocked them, setting a very low benchmark for Anglo-Irish relations. Henry now sought to make John a duke by trying to make Richard hand over the Dukedom of Aquitaine in return for the Dukedom of Normandy, but Richard refused and rebelled. On his deathbed, Henry discovered that John had finally gone over to the side of his brother. So the story of the eagles became true. Richard was crowned on the 20th of July, 1189. The Lionheart is probably a king that the majority of people could name, whether they have an interest in history or not. Um, thanks to various regal cameos at the end of assorted films about... Robin Hood. Richard usually turns up at the end of every film to put matters right so that Robin and Marion can skip merrily into the sunset. Unfortunately, in reality, Richard spoke no English and spent no more than six months in England. I mean, to be fair, Henry II didn't speak English either. Richard, however, spent most of his time trying to sell it off or mortgage it to pay for his part in the Third Crusade, upon which he'd set his heart. He once quipped that he'd sell London to the highest bidder to raise funds. Having fought Saladin and fallen out with a variety of European monarchs, he made his way home and managed to get himself captured by Leopold of Austria. Enough of that, I think. Um, he was eventually tracked down by his minstrel, Blondel, who wandered around playing the lute until the king responded and a huge ransom could be raised. Not good news for the taxpayers of England and even less good news for his brother John, who had conspired with Leopold to have Richard imprisoned on the grounds that he rather fancied being king himself. On release from prison, Richard found himself having to fight 
to regain his own empire. Killed by an arrow wound which went gangrenous. Technically, neither Richard nor John should have become king as big brother Geoffrey had a daughter Eleanor and a posthumous son named Arthur. Richard had named Arthur as his heir during the Third Crusade, but on his deathbed he identified John. Thanks to the Walt Disney version of Robin Hood, I still think of John as a lion with an overlarge crown, sucking his thumb and calling for his mummy. This image runs rather contrary to the rumours of the day which saw him starving prisoners to death and personally murdering his nephew. John, Lackland like his grandfather Henry I, had not started life with good prospects, but now, if only he could keep hold of it, had inherited an empire. Unfortunately, it promptly collapsed in 1204 when John left Normandy. In England, this was a signal for rebellion. It didn't help that he managed in 1209 to not only get himself excommunicated, but the entire country as well. John now had to get his lands in Europe back, and that required an army, which required money, which resulted in taxation, which resulted in lots of grumpy barons. To be fair, the barons were also quite grumpy about John's attitude to their wives and their daughters. Like his father and grandfather before him, he was a serial womaniser, and it is quite difficult to turn down a monarch. Hugh de Neville's wife, for example, had to pay a fine of 200 chickens so that she could spend some time with her husband rather than John in order to beget her husband and heir. Unsurprisingly, England was on the verge of civil war. In June 1215, the Magna Carta was signed at Runnymede. Ten weeks later, John renounced it and the First Baron's War kicked off. Rebel barons offered the crown to the French. The Scots took advantage of the unrest and John lost the crown jewels in the wash before dying at Newark in October 1216. He's buried in Worcester Cathedral. He was succeeded by his nine-year-old son, Henry, who was crowned using a circlet belonging to his mother because obviously the crown jewels had been lost in the wash. As a complete aside, all the Plantagenet monarchs in this podcast were served loyally by William Marshall, the child spared execution um, by King Stephen during the anarchy. It would have to be said that William Marshall had the common good sense to have his own biography written, the first one in English history. Although, obviously, Samuel Johnson gets credit for that in 1791. If you're looking for some non-fiction about the Plantagenets, there's no better place to start than Dan Jones's book of the same title. Um, if you want to look in more depth at Henry II, Claudia Gould's book is entitled King of the North Wind. Dan Jones provides us with an insight into a realm divided, a year in the life of Plantagenet England, um, when we can see the Barons' War beginning to kick off. Um, and then, of course, Mark Morris has written an excellent book about King John entitled Treachery, Tyranny and the Road to Magna Carta. Um, and for those of you who are looking for information about Eleanor of Aquitaine, a good starting point is with Alison Weir. For those of you who prefer your history in fictional format, Sharon K. Penman's book Devil's Brood might be a good starting point. 
Her series about Justin de Quincey, beginning with The Prince of Darkness, draws on the chronicles to provide a much more complex characterisation of John than a cowardly lion. I loved Ariana Franklin's series beginning with The Mistress of the Art of Death um, and you might find yourself enjoying Elizabeth Chatwick's series on Eleanor of Aquitaine which I think begins with a novel entitled The Summer Queen. Angus Donald's books about Robin Hood beginning with Outlaw are well worth a read and give me an opportunity to do this. If you're looking for something to see you through the long haul, then the Bernard Knight stories about the King's Coroner or Crowner in the Crowner John series might well be a must. I'm thinking of rereading them myself. And if that isn't enough to keep you occupied, then check out the Historical Novel Society, which provides a set of lists for novels for every time period you could possibly imagine. In the next episode, I shall continue with the Plantagenets, covering the reigns of Henry III to Richard II, so we'll be covering plagues, pokers and revolting peasants. The sound effects came from freesound.org. The arrow is by Yap Audio Production and the medieval lute chords are by Fragile. Attribution can be found on thehistoryjar.com. Thank you ever so much for listening and I hope you'll join me for episode three. Bye!